A lot of people say, well, it was a famine. He had to do something. Well, I understand he had to do something, but what he did was not what God would have chosen. See, the, where he was was the place God put him. And by the way, when God puts you somewhere, you don't run with hardship comes. Uh, your pastor uh, talked about that in Sunday school this morning. No, you don't run from your problems. You stay and let God's Word direct you in your problems, but he ran. It was, so it was a move of rebellion. He didn't have to run to provide for his family. Uh, we find a little bit later he had a kinsman redeemer named Boaz that could have helped him in this time if he would have looked at him, but he chose not to, but he ran. Uh, he made a mistake in his reasoning in his thinking. His thinking was totally premature. The Bible says that in this same book, his wife Naomi later on testified, said, we went out full. So he didn't experience the famine. He left before the famine really had any effects upon the nation, upon his family. He didn't have to leave. He went out full. So his thinking about what's going to happen was totally premature. You know, a lot of times things that you think will never take place. We tend to think the worst Instead of getting God's Word and let God's Word direct us, we tend to think prematurely. It was too prompt. He left without even seeing how bad the famine was going to be. He left without even giving God an opportunity to provide for him. He left not following principle of Scripture. May I point out, Boaz stayed. In the rest of the book, you read it, Boaz stayed. And Boaz was very blessed for his stay. But it, it was also his leaving, his choice was very prideful. And the reason why it was prideful, and I mention it, he had a, a kinsman redeemer that he could rely upon, but he chose not to rely upon him because he would have had to swallow his pride. It's hard for a man to say, I need help. Right? Now, it's becoming easier in most places for people that are viewed to be men to say, I need help, because manhood is being perverted in our country. You know, manhood is being, and I'm not on a political soapbox here, it's just fact, a manhood is being robbed of its masculinity and f putting feminine qualities in the men. But it's hard for a man to say, I need help. But you know what? When it comes to God, who, who better is to help us? And it's different then, you know, going, say, me going to Brother Shannon and say, Shannon, I need your help in something. I understand, you know, we, we do realize that sometimes men can't help us in the way that God can only help us. But he never cried out to God here. He never asked God for help. He never asked man for help. And I think that is a very prideful situation to, to get in. But he minimized all the problems and act like, well, I can handle this. I just will run uh, to my neighboring country over here. Only about a 40-mile trip is all it took him, but nonetheless, it took him into enemy territory. Nowhere in Scripture is anything good said about Moab. Everywhere you find Moab, you find them being an enemy to the people of God. So where he went, he went to a place that really didn't want him, especially if he was going to go there and live like he was supposed to have lived. He was supposed to have gone, if he was going to go there, he was supposed to have lived godly, but if he had been living godly to start with, he would have not gone to the enemy territory. But the enemy's not going to give him much problem probably if he's living like one of them. And obviously was because he let his sons marry two Moabitish women, which they were not supposed to have done. 
but he went there in a place that really didn't want him in an environment that ended up affecting his family. All right, don't, don't ever forget that the environment that you allow your family to be in will affect them either good or bad. And here it affected his sons in a bad way because they married two heathen girls. And that could have that could really been devastating, but uh, a very bad situation. And, of course, the end result of the situation was Elimelech died. And, of course, his two sons died. And, again, uh, prematurely, if I may add, and uh, a very unusual situation, which obviously shows that God was not pleased in the direction that they were taken. So we see Elimelech. It said, I will control my circumstances. Now, another way to look at that was, you know, he simply conformed to his surroundings. Remember, the surroundings was every man was doing that which was right in their own eyes. So he was simply doing what was right in his own eyes. When it comes to making decisions, he did a very poor job. Let me real quick throw out to you a little formula for making a decision. The first formula that we should add, our first idea in our formula to making decisions was the application of Scripture. Before you make any decision that will affect your life or your family's life, you need to see what the Word of God says about it. Apply Scripture to the situation. Second thing should be answered prayer. You shouldn't do anything until God answers some prayer about it. I know as a pastor, I've had people come to me, well, pastor, we're going to leave your church and go somewhere else. Well, why? Well, I've been praying about it. As if that's a magical Something, you know. I've got to a place where anybody tells me, and I'm a, I've look at them now and say, well, has God answered any of those prayers? And almost everybody I look and say, has God answered any prayer? Their head drops. Now, what does that tell me? God hadn't answered any prayer. They're doing it on their self-will, and they're adding the, I'm praying about it just so it will sound spiritual. No, if you're going to make decisions, you better apply Scripture. You better get answered prayer. Number three, you better get advice from spiritual people. Now, don't go to somebody carnal and ask their advice on your future plans. Go to somebody spiritual, somebody that knows this book and understands what this book is about, and get their advice. The fourth ingredient into making a decision is the approval of authorities. You say, well, I'm a grown man, or I'm a grown woman. I don't have any authorities. Oh, yes, you do. If you're a member of this church, your pastor is a spiritual authority in your life. If you still have parents alive, you have father and mother, they are authority in your life. They might not uh, longer have the authority to tell you what to do or what not to do, but they have the authority to advise you, and they should have enough respect for you to listen. But there should be other people. Now, it depends on your age, of course. If you're a younger person, you, st you still have parents, and you're not married, uh, your parents are still authority figures in your life. You need to get their input. But here's another ingredient, and I learned this experience, and it's a biblical principle, is the attitude of my heart when I'm right with God. See, I believe a biblical principle, when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. Not that He's going to take your desires and make them come apart, but He's going to give you, put into you the desires that He wants you to have when you delight in Him. The word delight simply means to be moldable in His hands. When you're willing willing to be molded by God, he's going to place within you the desires that he wants you to have. So what's the attitude of your heart when you're right with him? I was talking to somebody this recently, Thane, and I asked him what about his plans for the future, and he said, well, he was still thinking about that. I said, all right, if I give you a piece of paper tonight and you're right with God, what would you write on that piece of paper that you want to do for God? And he said, I want to be a pastor. I said, all right, make plans for that then. 
go forward. But if you apply those five principles in your life when it comes to making decisions, I guarantee you're going to make a whole lot more right ones than you will wrong ones. But there's a right way to make decisions. Of course, there's a wrong way, and Elimelech made a wrong one. He said, I'll control my circumstances. What's wrong with that? None of us are omniscient. None of us are all-powerful. We can't control our circumstances. Right when we think we have them by the horns, they change. Right? God is the only one that can control circumstances. We conform to our surroundings, and we're conformed to humanity. And humanity always gets us in trouble. We can't run from our difficulties. Come back to verse number 6, verse through 6 through 15, and we see the second example in chapter number 1 of a person that dealt with their circumstances. This is Orpha, verse number 6. Then she, and the she there is talking about Naomi, arose with her daughter-in-laws that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people and given them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-laws, Go return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with thee, as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. Now here, uh, Naomi... I don't know if she does it knowingly or if it was an unknown thing, but she challenges her now, her, do, her two daughter-in-laws, she challenges them three different ways about returning with her to back to Bethlehem. The first one right here where I stopped reading, she challenged them in the area of feelings, emotions, and that, because she talks about how they had helped her and then she kissed them and they were weeping and crying and her appeal was to their emotions. By the way, making a decision when your emotions are stirred is a very poor way to make a decision. It will always affect your circumstances in a bad way. And the reason why, feelings change very quickly. I have seen some people that they'd be laughing and talking and, and with you, and the next minute they, they were ready to cut your throat. I mean, that's how quick emotions and feelings can change. And she's challenging them here about this, and it says, verse 10, and they said unto her, surely we will return with thee unto thy people. I mean, that's how quick the emotional decision was made. Surely we will. But then challenge number two, verse number 11. And Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that you may, may be your husbands? And of course, that's talking about the Jewish Leverite marriage when uh, when a brother died, uh, the next son in line was take the wife and marry her and raise up children to the first brother. That's what she's making reference to. And she's saying, I don't have any more sons for you. She goes on, verse 12, turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She challenges them now in the area not only of emotions but their intellect. She puts some facts before them. Says, here's the facts. Would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this? Now, 
And by the way, it's a good thing to have facts before you up and make a decision. It's always good for you to know what may happen and what may not happen. In other words, uh, what does everything add up? Do the numbers add up? Do the facts add up? She's challenged them in the area of facts here. Now, this gets Orpha. Orpha chooses facts. Notice verse number 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth claved her, verse 15, and she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back to, unto her people and unto her gods. In other words, Orpha kissed her, and when she got the facts, and when she thought it through, I'm out of here. By the way, the facts don't always make a good decision either. I mean, you should know them without question. But sometimes the facts, even though they are adverse, is something that God wants you to overcome by his power, not human reasoning. And here we see that Orpha accepted the human reasoning. Oh, you're right, you're too old to have a son, and I'm not willing to wait until one would grow if you would have one. So what did she do? She chose the facts. Her intellect was appeased, was pleased, and she made a decision based on that, and she went back. Now, what did she go back to? She went back to her people. She went back to her gods. So what do we see? Eliminex said, I will control my circumstances. And Orpha said, convenience will determine mine. It would be very convenient for her to go back to her people. I mean, she knew everything. She knew all the customs. Very convenient for her to go back to her gods. You know, what's strange to me is I've been around enough people I grew up in a home where my dad drunk a lot of alcohol. And I've pastored people who grew up in sad situations. And what is amazing to me is you can be raised in an alcoholic home or you can be raised in an abusive sexually home or verbal abusive or physically abusive, and the majority of people end up doing the same thing that they were raised in. Why? Convenience. Another reason is that's what they knew. And what you know tends to give you security. Isn't that weird? You'd be raised in, in an alcoholic's home and see all that, what causes, and then you end up doing it? Or you've been raised in abusive situations, you end up being abusive yourself? Why? Security. It's what you know. And here Orpha is going back what she knew. It's real convenient. You don't have to change anything. And a lot of people handle circumstances that exact same way. Now, I want to jump over verses 16 and following. I'm, I want to look at that last, but I want to look at verse number 13 and verse number 20 and verse number 21. And I want to look at our third example on how they handled circumstances, and that's Naomi. Verse 13, would you tarry for them till they are grown? Would you stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the, notice this, that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Notice also, please, verse number 20. And, and she said, and that's Naomi, said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, 
and the Almighty hath afflicted me. We find Naomi dealing with her circumstances like so many people I have seen deal with their circumstances, and that is complain when difficulties are not to your liking. Complain. Here in the three verses that I read, you see her complaining against the Lord. Against the Lord. Now, starting out in, in these verses, verse number, go down to verse number 19. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. Now, they too, of course, is talking about Naomi and Ruth. And it's in the last part of verse number 19, when they were come to Bethlehem, all the city was moved about them, and they said, is this Naomi? You see that Ruth and Naomi start their way. Uh, Ruth chooses, and I'm going to look at her to follow and go with Naomi. And there's an agreement in what they're sitting out to do. But then you find not only the agreement, but you find the attention in verse number 19 of the, six, of the city. It says they're moved about them. The word move here literally means to, to make an uproar, to be agitated, to cause a commotion. And by the way, it says all the city. Uh, the word all, all the city there is in, in the Hebrew from a feminine action. So I think it's referring to all the women have come and they're moved. But anyway, from whatever standpoint, in other words, all these people be it women or men, were shocked when they saw Naomi. You know, here she, she left running from a famine, and she returns looking like she's endured one. Her appearance shocks them. They said, is this Naomi? In other words, she looked so much different that they were taken back by it. Now, uh, this is a true uh, riches-to-rags story, not a rags-to-riches, but a riches-to-rags situation. And uh, one thing that we have to say then is sin does transform people, don't they? It does. I'm thankful this morning I can proclaim to you that the grace of God will transform you more than sin will. Can I say that again? The grace of God will transform you more than sin will if you'll let the grace of God transform you. By the way, in the, this chapter, that's what Ruth does. Ruth lets the grace of God transform her. But Naomi, what did she do? She complained when the difficult. What happened? She let her remorse, and by the way, I understand her remorse. She had buried a husband. She had buried two sons. But she had let her remorse turn to bitterness. And when we allow remorse to turn to bitterness, we affect everyone around us in a negative way. And here we find her making these complaints, blaming her condition, if you will, and the way she looks upon the Lord. Now, her attitude here is one of bitterness. She says, don't call me Naomi. By the way, Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Call me bitterness. By the way, Disobedience doesn't usually cause one to be sweet. Can I say that again? Disobedience does not usually cause us to be sweet. Disobedience usually causes us to be unpleasant. Causes us to be cantankerous. Now, I've been in the pastorate now for 31 years, and one thing I've learned is this. Some of the most cantankerous, orneriest people on the face of the earth are not lost people. It's God's people that are out of will, out of his will. 
that are living disobedience lives. They're so unpleasant to be around. And here we find Naomi complaining. She's bitter, but then she's blaming God. She says, the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. And that word bitterly means grievous. God has dealt grievous with me. Listen, I'm here to stand you. The old song, Every Day with Jesus, is what? Sweeter than the day before. Uh, God's sweet to his children. The Word of God says he only gives good gifts to us. And the only time we take one of his gifts and view it bad is when we're looking at it through the eyes of man, not the Word of God. We get in God's Word and we say, all right, oh, a bad situation. A loved one has died. Well, death is, death is going to be a normal part of all our lives, by the way. It's the old hillbilly back home. If you live long enough, you're going to die. That'll soak in on you in a minute. But death is a reality. We need to learn how to deal with death when death comes. By the way, death is not for the one that died. Death is for those that are still alive uh, uh, for us so we can get our minds focused on heaven and focused on God and doing what God wants. That's what death is for anyway. But she, she's blaming God. He's, he's been very grievous with me. I think most people know when difficult times come, circumstances are adverse, there's a fly up here that's demon-possessed. <laughs> I think most people know when their circumstances is called by sin or a situation for growth from God. I think most people know that. Most people just won't stop and evaluate what's taking place enough to let God really do a work in their life, though. Here we find her complaining. She says this, I went out full... And then she says, but God brought me back empty. Now, God didn't bring her back empty. God brought her back, but God didn't bring her back empty. Her husband's sin, her son's sin, and I would just even say her sin is what brought her back empty. Now, when she came back, how did she come back empty? She came back empty of the members of her family. She came back empty of money and materialism, and she came back empty of a merry heart. Now, I challenge everybody in this place this morning, when bad circumstances happen, let God give you a merry heart in that situation. You know, a merry heart maketh a cheerful countenance, but the sorrow of heart of spirit is broken. The Bible in a number of places tells us that, you know, a merry heart hath a continual feast. Don't you want a continual feast? And he's talking about, pastor's talking about eating tonight. I like to eat. I've asked a lot of times for people, well, uh, where would you like to go for lunch? Or what kind of food do you want? My answer is yes. <laughs> I mean, it's food. Most of the time, I like it. The only, only food I really hate that I don't want is green peppers. You know, bell peppers, sweet peppers. Uh, anyway, we should have the attitude of Job. What did he say? The Lord hath given, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Don't, don't blame bad things on God, for God never causes bad things to happen. Everything he does is good. Sort of like my philosophy on ice cream. It's all good and better. I never had any bad, bad ice cream. And everything that God allows in my life is 
for our good and for our betterment. He only wants to give us good things. And if we will correct our thinking and not complain, it will sure change things for us, and it will change things for everyone around us as well. But we see her attitude here when it comes. But there's one last example in this chapter, and thank God for it. Go back, please, now to verse number 16. Verse number 16, we'll see the fourth example of handling circumstances. Again, Eliminech said, I will control my circumstances. I will run from my difficulties. Orpha said, oh, convenience over my difficulty. Let me return to my known ways. And Naomi said, well, I'm just going to complain about all my difficulties. I'm going to let my remorse be turned into bitterness. But Ruth comes on the scene. In verse number 16, notice it says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. The first thing she says to her mother-in-law is, Stop asking me to leave. That's literally the grammar here. Stop entreating me. Stop asking me to leave you. Now, that, that one statement should have reassured Naomi that this girl is going to help me out. It would have been a bad thing for Naomi to have returned to Bethlehem by herself. The track from Moab to Bethlehem was one of the most dangerous tracks of transportation that anybody would have taken. They were, she was going to go down from Moab. She was going to probably cross the Jordan River around Jericho. Then she was going to go up over 2,000 feet in elevation. And one road would have went to Jerusalem. One road would have went to Bethlehem. And that was one of the most dangerous treks from Jericho to Jerusalem or Bethlehem. That you, why? It's full of thieves, robbers. Now think about it. Women traveling a road where there's going to be robbers and rapists. It was not going to be good to go by themselves. It wasn't going to be much better with somebody else, but it sure would give you a whole lot more peace of mind if there's more than one person. But here we find Ruth reassuring Naomi, hey, stop asking me to do this. And then she goes on in verse number 16, for whether thou goest. And the word for literally because. Stop entreating me, and here's why I want you to stop. Because whether thou goest, I will go. She's pointing out to her that I don't care what your circumstances are going to be from this point forward, but I'm going to help you. I'm going to go with you. And she lays here now the way that we should handle circumstances that are adverse, and that is make a commitment with some conviction. A commitment. You know, it seems like people in America have forgot, even Christians have forgot, that when you stand at the altar right here and say, I do, that that's a commitment with conviction. Forty-five years ago this summer, I stood and said, I do to Renee. Forty-five years this summer. Now listen, there's been a lot of changes in 45 years. I used to have brown hair and a whole lot of it. <laughs> so she doesn't have her, you know, Mr. Universe anymore. <laughs> Neither do I have my Miss America anymore. We changed. But there's been commitments. When we, the first couple of years we were married, her, her father ran off from her mother and her when she was two, never heard from him, saw him again until she was 27. And so when we had an argument, she thought that, you know, I was going to do the same thing, just up and leave her. And I told her one day when she'd voiced that, I said, listen, 
you can't leave what won't leave you. I said, if you were to decide to leave me, you go out and get in the car. When you start backing out, you're going to see me in the mirror. I'm not, you can't get rid of me. Why? When I said I do, I committed to that. And we were going to work out the difficulties. We've had a few. Why? I'm a man. She's a woman. And that's a formula for difficulty right there. <laughs> but I made a commitment. What did that mean? That meant hard or easy. That meant rough or smooth. That means friend or foe. That means loss or gain. That means sick or well. That means hot or cold. That means full or empty. That means known or unknown. There was a commitment with convictions. And the more I read this book after Renee and I got married, the more I saw my commitment was only going to be fulfilled with convictions from this book right here. And I'll say the same thing to every one of you in this morning. I don't care what your commitment is. If it's not founded on the principles of this book, you're going to find yourself saying goodbye to your commitment. When things get difficult, you better have some commitment on the convictions of this book right here. In other words, you're willing to go anywhere and do anything that the Lord would ask of you. When God opens the door, or by the way, God doesn't always open the door he asks you to open it with biblical principle many times. By the way, a physical application is who opens doors for who? Well, when my girls were little, I'd open doors for them because they couldn't even reach the door handle. Right? We open doors for those that are weak and immature. But when they get older, we expect them to open their own doors most of the time, don't we? Well, God does the same thing. When, when you're young in the faith and you're growing, he'll open the doors for you. But there'll come a point in time, you'll come to the door and it, he doesn't open it, and that's because he's waiting for you to know if you should open it or not because of your growth in God's word. But we find here, it didn't make a difference to Naomi, I mean to Ruth, what the circumstances she is going to face for here. She is going. She goes on here. So where you go, whatever road you take, I'm following you. And then she says, whatever resident you find yourself in, I'm going to stay there. She says, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Then she goes on to say, and the relationships that you have, she says, thy people shall be my people. Now here, a Moabitess is going to go and, and start living with Jewish people. Do you think there's a difference between those two? Great, great difference between the Moabites and the Jews. And she says, your people, the relationships in your life are going to become my relationships. She was going to be the one that had to change. And by the way, everywhere you go in the book of Ruth, when, when Ruth is introduced, it's Ruth the Moabitess. That was like saying Rahab the harlot. It was not a good introduction. Everybody's, oh, okay, you're a Moabitess. You know what that meant? That meant that she was a loose woman originally. The Moabitess, their form of worship was to go in and have a sexual relationship with a priest or a priestess. That was what Moabite worship was. So when it says, Ruth the Moabitess, every Jew that met her had an idea of her life. But as you go through, she said, the relationships, Naomi, you have is going to become my relationship. Then she goes on, and thy God... My God. She was saying to Naomi, the religion that you have is going to become mine, and not just a religion, but a relationship with your God. And you go through the book of Ruth, you know what it finds out? Her testimony is you are an upstanding chaste woman. Your testimony is above board is what you find through the rest of the book. And her decision, now I don't know how 
all she had learned about Naomi's God, but they had taught her something. She uses the word for God, and a little bit later, verse number 17, she says, where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord, different word, God and Lord, Jehovah and Shaddai, uh, do so to me and more also, if all but death part thee and me. Now notice what kind of commitment she had. She said, the death of me or the death of you is the only thing that's going to separate me from my commitment with convictions to you, Naomi. Now that's, that's, that's a pretty good way of dealing with things. And she is going to forget her gods, which, by the way, were not gods, and she is going to choose to pick Jehovah God as her God. Now, look back at verse number 17. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. She says, the rest that I, have, that I choose to have. Now, Naomi wanted over in verse number 9, she's, Naomi speaking, The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you in the house of your husband. And now Ruth is saying, the only rest I'm concerned about is death. Now that's her commitment. She's, she's telling Naomi, I am willing to forfeit a life of rest with a husband in order to help take care of you, Naomi. That's what she's saying. That's a powerful statement. And she, she even uh, confirmed this with, the Lord do so to me and more also if I don't do this. In other words, she is calling upon herself God's judgment if she fails to f- fulfill her commitment. And by the way, that's the way we need to make a commitment. Can I say that again? That's the way we need to make a commitment. Putting ourselves totally in God's hands, and that's the only way we will fail to fulfill our commitment is if God steps on the scene and changes the situation. Now, I've presented to you four ways to deal with circumstances. I know that we all would want to do it like Naomi. At least I'd hope that we all would want to. But in order to do that, there's some thought that must take place. There must be changing of mind or repentance must take place in our thinking to get to the place where we would make this kind of decision in the face of our feelings, in the face of facts, our will must be motivated because we have thought it through and we've sought God on the matter. And after we've sought God on the matter, then we can make a commitment that only He can change. We won't, only He can change it. Now, folks, it's impossible to make that kind of decision if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I'm not talking about a think-so salvation. I'm not talking about, well, mom and daddy told me so salvation. I'm talking about a no so salvation because you have a biblical answer. You can take the Bible and you say, according to the Bible, I know that Jesus Christ is my Savior. That's the only way that you can make a commitment like I'm discussing this morning. You have to know Jesus Christ before you can make that kind of commitment. So my question in closing is this. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? And after becoming a Christian, have you let His Word change your thinking to the point that you can make a decision like Ruth made? Only you can answer that question. 
And as we bow our heads this morning, I'm going to ask the Lord to work in every heart so when you leave here this morning, you'll know if you're saved or if you know if you're ready to let God make a decision for you. Lord, we come to you this morning thanking you for the illustrations that you've given us, these examples of how to handle circumstances. And Lord, I pray that your spirit this morning would work in every single heart. If there's someone here today that is not sure of their salvation, Lord, would you draw that person to yourself this morning? If there's someone that has asked you to be their Savior, but Lord, they're not walking obedient. They're being disobedient as Elimelech and as Naomi. Help them to realize that as long as they walk in disobedience, they can't make a decision for you the way they should. Help them, Lord, to this morning confess their disobedience. Leave this morning right with you, ready to let you help them face every single circumstance of life. I ask you, Lord, to bless in a very special way. Lord, I pray that you'd reassure and comfort the heart of those that are saved and is willing to let you dictate their lives. I pray that you'd give them a special peace this morning as, as they leave. So again, God, we pray that you'd get glory to yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning?